So let's turn to our passage today in the book of James, and we'll be in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, uh, we'll be looking at verses 7 to 10 today, so turn with me there. And as you get there, um, you know, what do you, what do you do when you've messed up? Uh, what do you do? You've done something wrong. Maybe you've said something wrong. You've offended someone. How do you handle that? Uh, and a lot of it depends on some investigative journalism questions here, right? Uh, a lot of it depends on the who. Who have you wronged? If it's someone that you see all the time, you probably will have to deal with it. If it's somebody that you will never see again, maybe you won't. Some of it depends on the what, right? What did you exactly do? How, how bad is the offense? If you've murdered someone's loved one, right, that probably calls for a stronger reaction than, you know, if you maybe called them uh, got angry at them, uh, called them a name. Maybe for your own sake, you consider the why. So not, maybe not in, in someone externally about this, answering this question, but in the why. Uh, why did you do it? Like, what, what are the extenuating circumstances? In other words, I'm asking, what justifications can you give for the commitment of the sin? Uh, right? Is there something extenuating that a normal person would say, well, I could see why you did that. So maybe it's not that big of a deal uh, to apologize. So maybe you apologize, maybe you seek reconciliation, but those are difficult things to do. Uh, they, they are hard to do because they affront our pride, right? We don't like to say we were wrong, um, right? I'm never wrong. Sometimes the perspective is different, right? So we'll say that. Um, they're not always pleasant things to do. And so often perhaps we do nothing. We say nothing and we just let, let the offense pass and we just uh, gloss over it and we think nothing more of it. Um, we just pretend it didn't happen and they pretend it didn't happen. And even though it has happened and there's something in the undercurrent of our relationship, uh, now we're just going to kind of let that slide uh, until the offenses build too much and then there's some kind of blowout, right? But as Christians, we don't have the option of not doing anything. Uh, we can't just pretend and move on, pretend that nothing happened and move on. We are, of all people, called to confront our wrongs and to repent of them. Uh, Matthew 5, for instance, Matthew 5, 23 through 24, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, stop what you're doing, be reconciled first and then worship. We don't have the option of not dealing with our sin. If you are in Christ, you do not have the option of not dealing with your sin. As we turn to our passage today, we find James instructing believers that in humble repentance, there is forgiveness of sin. In humble repentance, 
there is forgiveness of sin. So let's see that in our passage out of James chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And this is the word of the Lord. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Chapter 4 of James's letter has been filled with hard-to-hear words, right? He, he hasn't exactly uh, been uh, holding any of his punches back. Instead, he's been pressing upon the church, calling out their inconsistencies in their faith, calling them to be as they ought to be and not as they are. Because in them he has seen such worldly desires, such worldly selfishness, such such pride and self-centeredness. And calls them, right, just a little bit before, you adulterous people. Right? Because they have been making themselves friends with this world and making themselves at war with God in return. Right, they claim to be followers of Christ, but they're biting words at one another uh, to the point of metaphorical murder. Right, He says that you murderers have proved something else, that they're following earthly wisdom. Right, we could go back to James chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. James three fifteen and 16. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And in essence, James has said, what I said there is true of you. And now in our passage today, he comes to the point of answering the question, well, what then? Right? What is the church to do? James has called them out, and what are they to do? with their selfish and quarreling ways. Well, James, just before this, right right before we read in verse 6, tells us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is opposition to the proud, but grace for the humble. And so how do we avail ourselves of this greater grace? How do we avail ourselves of the forgiveness of our sins, how do we put to rest the fights, the quarrels that arise from our self-centered desires? Well, let's see first what he says in verse 7, that we are to submit to God, not the devil. Submit to God, not the devil. As James moves from the accusations of the earlier verses of the chapter, he comes to exhorting us to avail ourselves of God's grace. And he begins with two opposites here, right? He's, he talks about submitting and resisting, submitting and resisting. And the question is, to whom? Who are we to submit to, and who are we to resist? Well, thus far, as James has written, right, he has, he has accused them, they have, they have been practicing submitting to the devil and resisting God. Right again, go to James 4, four again, where, where he says here, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Right? That's what friendship with the world entails. It entails submitting to the devil and his schemes. It means resisting the Lord God. It means serving and submitting to one at the expense of the other. Right? No, no one can serve two masters. And the solution, James says, is to change the objects. Right, without going nerdy and getting into an English grammar lesson, right? We have a subject, an action verb, right? A verb of action, and we have an object. So who, what are the objects of our submission and our resistance? To be a Christian, if you are in Christ, <laughs> is to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and to wholeheartedly reject the kingdom and authority of the usurper, the evil one. God gives grace to the humble. And this humility means nothing short, nothing less than, right? Nothing short of placing ourselves under the authority of God. Now, there are many in our day who don't want to hear that. There are many Christians who would claim that Jesus is their savior, but he is not yet their Lord. And maybe they're working on that. But Jesus is their Savior, but they wouldn't really claim him as their Lord. And let me say this in no uncertain terms. Jesus is either your Lord and Savior. He is either your Lord and Savior, or he is neither Lord or Savior. Do we understand that? There are no half measures. James says as much here. Submit to God. That means to be under his rule, to be under his authority. Grace comes with humble submission to God and his ways. And again, we could speak here about that word submit. It is a reviled word in our day because it is a word that we uh, associate with the oppressor. It is the oppressor who calls us to submit. And if there's one thing that we cannot stomach in our day, It is any who would claim the title of oppressor, whether that is of class, of race, of any of of any uh, religious authority. Right. To have an authority is to be under an oppressor. That's that's the thought. That's the that's the mindset of our day. And so submitting is an evil word. And there is some. Reality there that in the past we have seen, right? To submit to human authority, sometimes that is to submit to evil, right? There are genuine cases of those who oppress to harm, right? We're not arguing against that. I'm not saying that that's not possible. But there is one to whom we can submit who will never do evil, God. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? Do you understand that? And when I say that, because I think this is also sometimes our problem. When I say that we are to submit to God, I am not saying you submit to me. I am not saying you submit to a pastor. I'm saying you submit to God and his word. And you seek to understand it and believe it and trust it. Seek to know it. 
Submit may be an evil word in our day, but it cannot be for the Christian. And I think rather what we see, the real reason we revile that word, we hate that word, is because it offends our pride. Submit to God. No, God should submit to me. He needs to, he needs to do what I want him to do. God, this is my list of wants. When are you going to deliver them? Submit to God. Why would I do that? Right? That's pride. And there are many so-called Christians and so-called churches that do away with submission to God because it offends their sinful desires. They abrogate. They do away with the commands of God that offend their desires. How many churches there are and many within our very own community who are quick to lessen and remove the requirements that God has laid upon his people in the name of supposed grace. It's a lie from hell. Right? James links here the grace of God with humble and humbling repentance, with submitting ourselves to God, with putting ourselves under his authority. And instead, those who speak of forsaking the commands of God are rather like that crafty one in the Garden of Eden that we see in Genesis 3.1. Right? The, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the question is much the same today. What we hear in these so-called churches, from these so-called pastors, from these so-called Christians, is much the same. Did God really say? Did God really say that you cannot love whomever you want? Love is love, man. Don't you get that? Did God really say that he only created two genders? You don't know how I feel. I'm out of my body. I... I This isn't my true body. Did God really say you cannot divorce for any reason? You don't know what a nag she is. You don't know what a lazy bum he is. Did God really say that you should not share that little gossip? But come on, it's a good one. It's a zinger. It'll really make you think differently about that person. Did God really say you shouldn't tell that little white lie? It's not that big of a deal. It does more harm to tell the truth than to tell the lie. Did God really say, don't curse your enemies? But you don't know what they did to me. You don't know why they deserve the wrath of Dale. And if you call yourself a Christian, then to those questions you must answer, yes, God did really say. Yes, God did really speak his commands, speak to these issues, to these matters of sin. And yes, God did really say much about the things that our culture loves and celebrates. Listen to these words to the Ephesian church out of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Assuming that you have heard about Christ and you were taught in him, As the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self. Put off the ways of this world. Submit yourselves to God and walk in true righteousness and holiness. Because friend, if you think that you can be a friend of this world, doing and believing the things that it does, and that you can also be in Christ, you're dead wrong. To be friends with this world is to be enemies with God. And James calls you to submit to God. And notice what that submission, how that form takes place. In the second part of verse 7, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Right? This is the one of the ways that you submit to God. You resist his opponent. You withstand him. You resist the ways of the world, which is itself subject to, to, to his temporary rule. Do, we, do you realize that? Yes, the devil has rule over this, this place, this plane, but only temporarily. And there's coming a day when he will be put in his place for all eternity. And all those who follow with him will join him in like stead. Right? Resist the devil. Peter warns in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Why should you be alert? Why should you be paying attention? Why should you be listening with skepticism to everything that this world teaches? What you hear in the classroom, what you watch on TV, what you see in social media, Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion so he can come and cuddle up next to you. That's not what Peter says. That's not what lions do, right? Seeking someone to devour. So what are we to do? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The reality is Satan is looking for souls to conquer. He is looking to tear and destroy. His purpose is destruction. Never believe, right? Because the lie he gives us, the lie he gave Eve in the Garden of Eden, is right. Did God really say what God's doing? He's trying to keep something good from you. You can take it for yourself. And then you'll be like God. And he promises everything. And what does he do? Bring death and destruction. That's it. That's his purpose. That's his plan. Satan is looking to conquer souls. So resist him. Stand against him. Oppose him. Withstand him. And he may bring suffering your way, right? That's what... 
Peter says there, right? The devil's roaring. He's seeking someone to devour, resist him, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? Satan in his attempt to destroy us may move the mechanisms of society to harass and harm us. He may hurt the body, but here's the thing. He can never kill the soul. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Submit to the one who who has your eternity in his hands and resist the one who might make you suffer in this life but will himself suffer in the next. And what's more, what James says here in verse 7, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The evil one hates being resisted. Scares him away. What's more, when we resist, the evil one will flee. When he realizes he doesn't have the power over us that that he thinks he does, he will run. When Job was finished being harassed and harmed by Satan, and understand too that part of Job's harassment and harm was at the hands of his own friends who were there to comfort him, who did anything but. When... Satan realized he had lost. What did he do? Fled. God was there. He fled. He fled from the presence of God. He lost. He had no recourse. Job resisted the devil. And understand, too, I think we might even say that his wife was a bit acting as the devil because she says what? Why don't you just give up? Say curse curse God and die. It's not the truth of God, is it? Job resisted the devil. Job submitted himself to God. We see that when he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this case, God has yet more grace on Job by giving him earthly restoration. We're not all promised this, but in Job's case, we see it. Job 42.10, Job 42.10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. We're not always promised that. We know that. We know that from church history. God bless Job, though. But to all who submit to God will find his grace. And they will find glorification on the day of Jesus Christ. So submit to God, not the devil. Let's continue into verse 8 and see what this submission also entails, right? Draw near in holiness not in double-mindedness. Draw near in holiness, not in double-mindedness. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In the Old Testament, we have this idea expressed that we see in this first part of verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Zechariah 1, 3, and 4 says, Zechariah 1, 3, and 4, Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. 
but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Right, the message of God to the people of Israel was return, turn back, repent. We see that in Malachi, return, return to me and I will return to you. This is the message of the scripture over and over again to the people of God. Return to me and I will return to you. Repent. In, in Zechariah's case, right, it was a message of promise. If you return to me, I will return to you. You may be suffering under judgment, but if you would just turn back to me, I will turn back to you. You'll find all of my grace and mercy. And we have this promise here in the book of James. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Right? The, he says to the church, submit to God. Draw near to him. Walk close to him. How do we draw near to God? Do we avoid his word? Do we avoid prayer? Do we avoid the fellowship of the saints? Often we find, often I know this has been true in my own life, when I am in sin, the last thing that I want to do is pick up my Bible, get on my knees in prayer, or be around other Christians. And what do I do when I do that? When I give in to those impulses? I don't draw near to God, and I find He doesn't draw near to me. And yet in my sin... If I repent of it, if I go to him in prayer, I find sweet consolation, comfort, grace, and mercy. Now we must admit that there are times in our Christian walk when God does seem distant. And it's not a matter of there being sin in between us, but it may be a matter of testing. God is testing us. What is our faith in? A feeling or the truth of God? Right? Is our faith in, a, a, I've got a warm feeling that God is there next to me, or is our truth in the, the, the tr- is our faith in the truth of God? Do we believe that He is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do? Do we believe that even though I may not feel it? I think of Paul's statement, which I always go to the song version. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Or do we believe that I am believed and persuaded? Not I feel it. But I believe and I'm persuaded that God will keep his promise. So sometimes we don't have the feeling of God's nearness because it's a time of testing. What do we believe in? A feeling or God? But we also have to realize, right, what James is implying here, that sometimes God is distant, not because of testing, and it's certainly not because of unwillingness on his part, but rather it is much our own fault. What does it take to draw near to God? Well, the psalmist David asks in Psalm 24, 3, he asks that question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer we see in the next verse in Psalm 24, 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
So before we are quick to to blame God for voiding his word or abdicating his responsibility, we must first ask ourselves if we have drawn near to God. We must ask ourselves if we can even draw near to God. If there is unrepented sin in our life, we should expect no nearness of God's presence. If Moses, right, if we go back to the book of Exodus and we look at Moses, Moses, who is the meekest man on all the earth, Moses, who has seen the presence of God in the burning bush, Moses, who sees the glory of God and receives the commandments of God, Moses, who intercedes on behalf of a people who are stubborn and unwilling to submit themselves to God. What does God say to Moses when Moses asks, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, man cannot look on me and live. The sinfulness of man is such that he cannot look on me and live. Yet God did let him see the back parts of his glory. The, The shadows cast by his passing. The glorious light. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We must ask ourselves, as we seek to draw near to God, do I have clean hands? Do I have a pure heart? And that's asking a lot, right? That's no small task but it's one that Christ accomplishes in us. It's one that we can attend ourselves to. And that's what James says here, right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Maybe he has in mind what David says here in this psalm. He certainly probably has in mind the, the idea of the purification rituals that we see in the Old Testament. And what is he saying here to us? He is saying, let your outward, outward appearance, outward obedience be clean. Obey God. Submit to Him. But notice too, it's not just an outward component. Purify your hearts. He's talking about the outward and the inward. What he's talking about is a wholehearted man or woman. He's talking about someone who has an inward disposition that shows itself in outward obedience. Both of these need to submit to God. It's not enough. Listen, it's not enough to say, I have clean hands, but an impure heart. What is that? Hypocrisy. That's what Jesus decries the Pharisees for in the Gospels. Right? You whitewashed tomb. You dirty cup. And it's also not enough to say that we have inward, we we have a pure heart, but... Dirty hands, impure hands. Why? What is that? It's a, it's a thing that cannot be. It's a thing that James has been dealing with this, these, these churches about. Because inwardly they're saying, well, I believe in Christ. I profess Christ. I have faith. And yet they have zero works. 
And James says, it can't be. You can't have faith. You can't have a pure heart in dirty hands. It doesn't work. It can't work. It doesn't make sense. And so he says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. And I want to be clear here as well. The James is not saying, do good and be saved. Right? That's a false gospel. That's not what the scripture says, and that's not what James is saying. He is saying, if you are saved, then act like it. Be like it. Don't forget what he has already pointed to in verse 6 of our chapter here. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who does the work of salvation? God. He saves us. He regenerates us by his Holy Spirit so we can see the truth of ourselves and of Jesus Christ. He is the one who, through Jesus Christ, paid the penalty of our sins. He is the one who purposed our salvation, choosing us from the very foundation of the world. And those whom he predestined, what did he do? All the things we see in Romans 8, right? That end in, that capstone in, glorification. Being like Christ. But who does the work of sanctification? Who does that ongoing work, that process by which we are made more and more like Christ? God and us. God initiates it. He purposes it. He gives us the power of the Spirit. But we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to show ourselves as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. We are to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. Listen, you cannot submit to God without God's work in you. But if you have God's work in you, you must submit to God. He gives greater grace. He will give you the grace you need to repent, to submit, to draw near. He will give you the grace that you need if you humbly ask and seek and knock. He gives good gifts to his children. Never forget that, beloved. Let that be your hope and strength. And never compromise. Never think that God is satisfied with your sin. Never believe the lie of our society, even if it is cloaked in the language of Bible and church, that God wants anything less than your whole self. And if any preacher ever tells you that God is okay with a half measure, if, if God is okay with a profession without an obedience, run, resist. Oppose, withstand, because he's speaking a lie, not the truth of the word. God is looking for wholehearted, outward works and inward obedience, a whole heart, not double-souledness, right? Not double-mindedness. And for those of you who have compromised, those of you who think that you can be a friend of this world and a friend of Christ, James calls you to walk with mournful humility, not with prideful laughter. So let's look at that in the last two verses of our passage, 9 and 10. Walk with mournful humility, not with prideful laughter. Be wretched and mourn 
and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. God is calling you to repentance. And some of you really need to hear these words. Some of you need to weep over your sins. Some of you need the seriousness that James is writing here. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7, Ecclesiastes 7, 2 through 4. Listen to this. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Just pause there and say, would you ever hear anyone in our culture say that? Would you hear the celebrities, the actors, the actresses, the singers, our politicians ever say anything like that? Some of you need to go to a funeral and stare at a casket. That's what Solomon writes. That's what James writes. Let that sink in. Solomon writes that because one day you will die. You may think you may live many more years. You may think you have a hundred years before you. Uh, my grandmother, who had just turned a hundred, died this past week. A hundred is a hundred years is a long time. I always, whenever I hear of uh, people of that age, I was trying to think back to when they when they first started life and how much has the world has like utterly changed in that time because I know even in my short amount of years, a lot has changed. hundred years may seem like a long time, but it's a speck of dust in comparison to all eternity. And I say this especially for you younger folk because the same foolishness that in, inhabits the, the youth, uh, you, you think that you're strong. And you are strong right now. You think you're quick, and you are quick right now. You see us old folks moving, and every time we get up, we're, uh. And you think, well, look at me. I can jump up. I can do handstands. I could do cartwheels. I could do one cartwheel, and then I'd have to be carted to the hospital, right? That's, that's what I could do. You think you can do anything. And our culture reinforces that idea. But you are going to die. You are going to suffer the decay of your body. You are going to find, and it often happens sooner than you realize, that the laughter and feasting of this world is worthless vanity. And understand what our culture tries to do as well. Force feed us entertainment so we never think about the reality. They say, well, your feasting is done there in that house. Come to my party. We'll keep it going. Talking metaphorically here. But understand that every, that little black square in your pocket is designed to keep you anesthetized from the truth 
of God's word and of your life. That's its sole purpose. It's designed to do it. In fact, read some, uh, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that that's the purpose of these things, purpose of things like Facebook, go and read some of the people who used to be engineers and how they talk about how their goal, their, their design was to make it so that way you were engaged as long as possible, that you forgot everything else and you engaged only with that. Why? Because it makes them money. And why does Satan enjoy it? Because it keeps you from the truth. You need to take the word of God to heart. You young folk, you need to take the word of God to heart. Because one day, you will stand before him in judgment. And he will either look at you and say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Or he'll say to you, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Jesus says in Luke 6.25, Luke 6.25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So you need to understand the words of that wise king of Israel, David. Psalm 51.17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Or as James continues in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And I'm not going to comment on this verse. I'm going to read it to you in a couple of different versions because I want this, this message to sink through. James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Or perhaps we should remember Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. James calls the church to repent, to turn back from their sinful ways, and renew their commitment to Christ. He calls the church to submit themselves to God, not the devil. He writes instructing them to seek wholehearted holiness, not the double-mindedness that lets Blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. He calls for a contrite heart instead of the foolhardy laughing from the condemned. I do not know the state of your hearts today. I do not know, brothers and sisters, what evils you have borne in your heart today or this week. I do not know if you have failed to confess your sins before God. But I do know this. In humble repentance, there is forgiveness of sins. As Christians, we should be the first to seek reconciliation. We should be the first to confess our sins. We should be the first to ask forgiveness and to offer it. Why? Well, Jesus, in confronting a self-righteous Pharisee who thought it a rather shock to, to see Jesus allow a sinful woman touch him and to wipe his feet, worship him, concludes this in Luke seven forty-seven. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. 
but he who is forgiven little loves little. And if you comprehend something of the love and the forgiveness of God, if you comprehend something of what God offers unto you, then how quick it should be that it wells up within you like-minded action. And listen, this is, this, is, this is the amazing thing, right? The love and forgiveness of God is not grudging. Sometimes that's how we act, right? Fine, I'll forgive you. God never does that, ever. For everyone who comes to him in genuine repentance, everyone who seeks him honestly will find him. And if you submit to him in all your ways, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. If you humble yourself before him, telling him the truth of the worst of you, he will exalt you. Indeed, to be a Christian is to confess your wretchedness. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, you admit of yourself such evils that it required the Son of God to pay for them. Do you realize that? If you attach yourself to Christianity, if you call upon the name of Christ, if you hold on to the cross, right, you're saying, my evils were so bad. I was such an evil person that it required the wrath of God on Christ to satisfy. The cross is the constant reminder that in you is such evil that it took the only begotten Son to pay the penalty of them. And if you think that you're not so bad, that maybe you've not really done that many great evils, you only think that because you haven't really comprehended the truth of sin. And understand, I say that to, to the old, older folk as much as the younger folk. Right? You may not have done great evils, you haven't murdered and committed adultery. But sin is so abhorrent. Sin is such of a, of a quality, an evil quality, that it requires the blood of Christ. It's such a blot and stain that it could only be removed by the blood of Christ. It is such a, sin is such a massive debt that it requires a king's fortune to pay it off. Sin is such treason that the only justice that is right and good is capital punishment. Some of you need to consider the cost of your sins. You have been going through life with a cavalier attitude, thinking little of the evils of your thoughts and words and deeds. Some of you need to hear the words of verse 9 here in our passage again. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Right now may be the time for you to mourn. Or maybe this afternoon, instead of going and sitting in front of a TV, going and doing those, those mindless things that you do always, maybe what you need to do today is go into your room alone, close the door, get on your knees before God. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. Get on your knees before God. Get on your face before God and weep before Him, confessing your sins to Him. Being wretched and mourning and weeping and finding God's forgiveness. You need to pray Psalm 51 and mean it. And some of you are there. 
Some of you understand something of the weeping before God that James is here calling for. And you need to hear verse 10 again. Don't miss verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You need to hear the beautiful words of life from the book of Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You need to know that God has forgiven you, that he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The good news is that Christ Jesus loved you, brother, sister. He gave his life for you. He is not pleased with your sin. And you know that if you know that. But he is there to draw near to you. And he wants you to come to him. And he wants you to He wants to show you all the more the extent of his grace towards you. He wants you to mumble, shout, sing, weep. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In humble repentance, there is forgiveness of sin. Don't forget that. That's the gospel. That's James' words to us today. For yet some of you who have not humbled yourselves, who have set yourselves against God in his ways, understand that there is coming a day of judgment. And unless you repent, unless you humble yourself, you will find the other part of the proverb James quoted true. God opposes the proud. In your failing to acknowledge the truth of your sins, you set yourself against God and and in effect call him a liar. You laugh and revel. You go through life enjoying the world and its goods. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, Listen to this closely. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Wrath is coming upon you, son and daughter of disobedience. You will share in the same lot as your father, the devil. And don't think you can argue your way out of it. Don't think you can buy your way out of it. Don't think that you have any hope. Save one. There is only hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he who has made possible reconciliation between God and men. And it requires humility. It requires you to go before God and humbly ask him for the forgiveness of your sins. It takes real repentance, turning away from the evil ways you want and submitting yourself to God in his ways. And if you do that, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. And you will find that the morning of a moment will reap for you an eternal life of joy. That's what God promises to those who are his. So turn to God, look to Christ Jesus, forsake your sins, humbly repent and find forgiveness. And then seek God in all your ways. 
Submit to him in everything. Draw near to him and he will exalt you. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, exalted and glorious in every way, you who are holy, 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 righteous, good, and true, you who are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, you who seek to woo us and warn us, show us your delights and reveal to us your judgments. God, if we but have eyes to see and ears to hear. Oh, Lord God, if our hearts and minds can can understand and believe. Oh, how we worship you. Oh, how we want to draw near to you. And God, how we confess even now in this moment the things that separate us from you. God, how we confess the vain and vapid things that keep us from you. God, how we confess unto you those evils that we commit against you in thought and word and deed. God, how we confess as your servant Paul does in the book of Romans when we want to do good, evil lies close at hand. How we confess, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And how we confess, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, forgive us of our sins. God, forgive us for the evils that we have desired over you. God, forgive us for not resisting the devil. Father, forgive us. And we know, Lord, we know that you will. And God, we pray. Father, we pray for those we know and for those in the community around us that are unknown. Father, for those who maybe even are gathered right now in places called churches, in places to the purpose of supposed worship of you, who sit under the teaching and the preaching of those who would say that it's fine to do evil and forsake the good. God, we pray for them. Lord, that you would have mercy upon their souls. Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit and remove the scales that blind them to the truth. Father, we pray that they would not enter into eternity to suffer your judgment. but to see the beauty of Christ and worship Him forever.
God, we pray that you would help us. That you would strengthen us. That you would purge us and cleanse us. Father, that we would walk in holiness before you and before a watching world. Father, that we would be quick to proclaim the grace and mercy that is available to them in Christ. Oh God, help us. We pray in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus, your Son, our Savior and Lord, our great High Priest. Amen.